0: China has emerged as one of the 21st century's most consequential nations, making it more important than ever to understand how the country is governed. Welcome to Pekingology, the podcast that unpacks China's evolving political system. I'm Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS. And this week, I'm joined by Manoj kewal fellow China Studies at the Takshashila Institution. Today, we'll be discussing how to read the People's Daily. Manoj, thanks for joining the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Jude. So I wanted to start by asking about this project which you've undertaken. And for listeners who have not already done so, uh, I have to urge you, pause the podcast and immediately go subscribe to Manoj's Substack newsletter, which is called Tracking the People's Daily, which he puts out every day and is a very close, really insightful exegesis on the People's Daily. So before we get into your biography, Manoj, and and, and the substance of our conversation on how to read the People's Daily, I'd just like to ask where did the conception for this project come from? And and as a practical matter, how the heck do you find time to read, translate, and comment on the People's Daily every day? The impetus for
1: this project came uh, last year. I was trying to sort of read through the People's Daily to try and figure out what's been going on with the pandemic, specifically uh, in January last year. And uh, it sort of started a habit where I would go through uh, it every morning. Um, I used to sort of look at the people daily uh, once every week previously, to just track what's happening in China. But uh, during the pandemic, I started doing it far more regularly. And then once I started doing it, I started realizing, well, this is really useful information. Um, uh, Around India, my sense is that people don't really read Chinese media uh, with the sort of the the pejorative connotation of Chinese media predominantly being propaganda and therefore unreliable, sort of pushes people away from it. And my thought was that, well, you're approaching it in the wrong way. You don't need to look at it as uh, giving you unbiased, objective news, but you need to look at it as providing you information about what the party is discussing and how it's thinking about itself. And that's where I sort of started to look at it far more regularly. Uh, and once I started doing that I sort of came it became a habit uh, and sometime in the middle of last year I started uh, a medium blog where I would just do it in sort of short form just quickly translate the sort of key bits and put them out um, and then that's grown as you've seen much much into a much larger project it takes me about a good two two and a half hours every day to run through things and as it develops into a habit you sort of develop a knack of uh, what you're interested in, what you're not interested in, what you think matters politically, what doesn't matter. And then if you become a little bit more picky with what you do. But yeah, but that's how it sort of plays out on a daily basis, Monday to Friday. It's about a good two, two and a half hours of going through that document while attending some meetings in office.
0: (laughs) And, and, uh, you know, I wanted to get into the substance of that comment you just made about how you select what's interesting and what's not. And indeed, in this morning's edition, which I read as I always do first thing in the morning, that I noticed you know, on the theory page, for example, you, you, you basically said, here's one piece of interest. I'm going to ignore the rest because there's not much new here. So I wanted to, in a, in a bit, get into how you make those analytical judgments. But next, let me ask you for folks who aren't subscribing to the podcast and haven't, like myself, seen you and, and read you and, and also watched your, your lectures and talks on YouTube, can you just tell us a little bit about your, your biography and, and especially as it, it, it regards to China? How did you get interested in China? What's your background uh, in China? And, and I'd also love if you wouldn't mind just a little bit about your, your new book. Let me just begin with my biography. I took sort of a very strange path to studying China. Very
1: early on in my youth, all I wanted to ever do was to become a Bollywood celebrity. Unfortunately, that dream didn't work out, and I found myself uh, you know, doing journalism. And you know, I spent many, many years in India as a journalist. At a certain point of time, fatigue caught up with me, and I decided to take a career break. My family is sort of a trading family, and my father's been working, uh, exporting through China for the last 40 years. So it was an opportunity for me to just visit China, to look at the place. I mean, in 2011, I moved over there to sort of work with my father, just take a break from journalism, do something different, work with my father as a trader. So I spent two years from 2011 to 2013 working as a trader in China, working with sort of small factories, large factories, exporting all sorts of things. And at that point of time, it was one of those things that I was just doing because I wanted to give it a shot. But uh, in hindsight, there was so much wealth of experience that I was gathering because manufacturing at some level is the heart of Chinese economic power. Um, And to be able to experience that firsthand was, uh, in hindsight, I see it as something that was a real, real plus. But in 2013, I sort of wanted to return back to journalism, but I didn't want to leave China. Um, And unfortunately, there are very few Indian media outlets who look at hiring people as journalists from China, which is absurd. But I understand the economics of it from an Indian media point of view. But unfortunately, you don't have those opportunities. So... I found myself uh, having an opportunity at CCTV. So I joined CCTV as a digital media editor. I worked with them for three years. Fascinating experience. You know, I don't, I wouldn't sort of call what I was doing there journalism, but uh, an interesting experience in terms of just observing the nature of discourse, political priorities, the changes that were taking place in China at that point of time. From what, if I recall correctly, I moved to Beijing in June, 2013. Uh, And I think it was the same week where Xi Jinping was traveling to Sunnylands to meet Obama. And it was just fascinating in that first week to experience what was going on. And subsequently, of course, you know, the Boshi Lai trial and all of that. So just the experience of how Chinese media covers things differently, what sort of priorities prevail, and how the environment for discourse in China was changing in the three years that I was there. To me, that sort of piqued my interest. Going forward, once I returned to India, it was back to the case of this realization that In India, we're not looking at China in terms of how China looks at itself. We're not doing any of that analysis. And we're not even actually looking at it as as a strategic priority, which it should be, uh, because so much of our attention is focused on Pakistan and the United States. And that was sort of a driving force for me to look at China from a policy point of view. And that's where sort of my work has uh, grown in that direction.
0: And of course, you've got a, a book coming out, but I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about this. The name is Smokeless War, China's Quest for Geopolitical Dominance. That's a heck of a title. What was the motivation and what is the big takeaway?
1: So I looked at the book from the point of view of essentially uh, sort of the idea for the book comes came to me in April last year. And it, sort of the impetus was an article in The Economist which talked about whether China was winning what was happening with regard to the pandemic. And I thought that the phrasing, the concept of winning was really, really strange in all of that. Victory for who, what does it mean? And all of those sort of questions were there in my head. Uh, and at the same time, it was something to be, it, it, was, it was really, really interesting to see that in three months' time, or less than three months' time, you know, Beijing had locked down Wuhan, and yet Wuhan was opening, and the rest of the world was going through a shutdown. Uh, India, the United States, the rest of the world was all going through a shutdown. To just see how the narrative in China had shifted. Because like I said, I was tracking Chinese discourse from January last year quite closely. But just see how that narrative has shifted, uh, and while you know you get used to that phrase coming from the Chinese foreign Ministry about you know opposing Cold War mentality, you saw so much more in the Chinese media about its system superiority, its system delivery, delivering much better, and the pandemic being a big example of that. So that was the impetus for the book. The big argument that the book makes is, essentially and I use the smokeless war metaphor which Wang Yi used. From the point of view of that, this was that containing the pandemic was a war like effort from a Chinese point of view, just like many other leaders around the world have used that uh, metaphor. But it was also beyond that. There was a discourse contestation. There's a contestation that is going on for norms uh, of global governance. There's a contestation that's going on with regards to supply chains. And my effort in the book has been to sort of unpack all of that in terms of the story of last year, but also talk about the big picture going ahead in terms of. How is this contest going to shape in the future? What are the challenges that we are likely to see? How is China preparing itself? How is the Xi Jinping-led administration preparing itself for what it clearly sees is a difficult external environment and domestic challenges? And what are the trends that are going to shape cooperation between different countries, sort of the democratic countries, and how limited or how strong that cooperation can be in terms of achieving the interests? And are these interests really shared interests? Because I don't necessarily think across the board, there's a common understanding of the challenge that China poses and the nature of the interests that we have and how common they are and how shared they are. All of this is going to be a difficult process of negotiation, whether it's on supply chains, whether it's on core technologies and all of that. And sort of the book sort of unpacks all of this to hopefully provide a framework to people to think about what's coming down the road in terms of the nature of competition geopolitically for the next five, seven years.
0: Well, and, and as I was saying before we click record, I already have downloaded my copy on Kindle uh, and started reading it last night, and and I'm really, really enjoying it. So I think this will be a very, very valuable contribution to, as you say, this this set of thorny challenges that that we're going to have to work through. And and without making it a particularly effective transition, no, let me nonetheless now now turn to the substance of our conversation, which is the the People's Daily. And again, I think it's probably inarguable that aside from the, uh, the, the editors of the People's Daily and, and the occasional cadre within the system, you, you probably read it more closely than just about anyone else. And I thought a, a question to start with is actually at a literal and a conceptual level, what is the People's Daily? That's a good question, right? I mean, uh, I think that
1: if you Think of, and I, I sort of alluded to this when I was speaking about how Indian analysts tend to approach or Indian media tends to approach approach Chinese media. I think if you look at the People's Daily as any other news news outlet or a newspaper, I can't even call it a newspaper anymore because it's so much more than a newspaper now with digital presence and video presence and everything. But if you just think of it as a regular newspaper where you know the most important, relevant, newsworthy content gets greater space, where editors agonize over speed of uh, coverage, accuracy, objectivity, balance, uh, and you know all those good things that make journalism an exciting endeavor, then you're probably going to be highly, highly disappointed and deeply mistaken. Uh, the People Daily is the Communist Party of China's flagship newspaper. It's the mouthpiece of the Central Committee, and it's run by the Propaganda Department. Um, if I recall correct, correctly, I think it was established in June 1948, So it predates even the formation of the PRC. So it just tells you that it's the party's newspaper, it's the party's mouthpiece. And it's grown to, like I said, a much bigger thing. What it essentially does, I mean, I look at it from the point of view of three key features that we need to keep in mind when we look at the piece. The first is that the coverage represents the priorities and viewpoints of the Chinese leadership. The news isn't as relevant as the commentaries are, and the commentaries sort of are the highest form of uh, public messaging by the party leadership. And there's also a gradation in the commentaries, which perhaps we can get into later. But the key point is that it's so apart from probably the direct edicts of the party, it's the most authoritative tool for public messaging uh, to understand what the central leadership is thinking, its views on domestic and global events, the narrative that it wants to shape, the policies that it desires to emphasize, uh, and the language also that it's using to communicate predominantly with the 90-odd million cadre of the party. And this is, of course, unlike the New York Times or Times of India or Indian Express, which are not driven by priorities of the American or the Indian government. The second point is that uh, at different points of time, if you look at the People's Daily, because it's, it, it's not just a unified narrative that often comes out. Right? At different points of time, when there have been disturbances in the party at a higher level, which have been heightened, you will see that the People's Daily's coverage has offered a window, uh, and albeit a very foggy and a hazy window, into the push and pull of elite politics in China. The April 26, 1989 editorial with regard to the Tiananmen Square students' movement is a case in point. But before that, also, if you look at it in December, 1986, we saw uh, the People's Daily Pieces call for dialogue through appropriate democratic channels, talking about some sort of political reform as a concession to the protest that was going on at that point of time. And very soon we saw that all of that vanished. And by the middle of January, 1987, Huya Pang had vanished from the scene he had resigned. So even even though what the editorial suggested It wasn't necessarily the policy that was essentially going to come into place. There was a deeper push and pull playing behind the scenes. And if you eventually observe that, you know, in hindsight, you can sort of get a sense of how that dynamic played out. At the same time, sort of, you see back to even if you go further back to the Cultural Revolution, the People's Daily's commentaries reflected this anti-intellectual climate of the time. After Mao Zedong's death, the commentaries and the narrative sort of shifted with the contest that was going on with the Gang of Four to sort of talk about you know economic reform in some way, and it sort of creates that narrative. So it tells you a little bit about also. The push and pull that's going on within the party, if you read very carefully, although that's really difficult to eventually, but if you do sort of do it more regularly, then you can sort of at least find some strands of, you know, dialogue that you can see, which tells you about changes and disturbances within the party. The third point that I'll make with regard to understanding the people's Daily is that in terms of the Chinese party state ecosystem, it enjoys what uh, one of its former commentary department chiefs, Wu Gokang. I had spoken about as the hegemony of discourse in China, uh, hegemony of media discourse in China. Essentially, you know, it talks about issues of ideology, theory, regulations, foreign policy, domestic policy, and the the line that the People's Daily sets on all of these essentially percolates to different organs of media. Um, At different points of time, you'll see local media in China reprinting, rebroadcasting what was there in the People's Daily, some analysts tend to see that as a pledge of loyalty or an expression of loyalty to the central leadership by the local leadership. So again, studying the media dynamic in China sort of informs you a little bit about that also. But essentially, the idea is that on big issues, on key issues, the party's line is available in the People's Daily and that line percolates to the rest of the media. And you see a lot of repetition Therefore, So that's how I would sort of conceptualize the where how one should approach the People's Daily and why one should approach it with seriousness.
0: I mean I mean that's really helpful, and especially I appreciate the the analysis on on where people's Daily fits into the broader ecosystem. My I guess my next question is who is the audience for People's Daily? Obviously, you just mentioned that this is an authoritative mouthpiece for the Central Committee, but of course, the Central Committee has lots of other ways it can get its message out, whether that's speeches. By senior leaders, meeting readouts after the you know a, poll, a monthly pull up bureau meeting, and of course every night China has the Xinwen Lianbo, the the CCTV news broadcast. Who's reading the People's Daily? And I'm I'm curious if why the party feels like this is still an effective channel for messaging, given that we're in 2021 and print seems to be dying elsewhere, but yet the party continues to plot along. Yeah, I mean that's an interesting question, right? I mean. I- I think that one of the things is that from
1: the point of, like you said, speeches or readouts of statements post meetings, those will sort of tell you the official line, but the opacity of some of those things, and particularly if you look at speeches, they need tremendous interpretation because often when you see what Xi Jinping is saying or some of the other leaders are saying, they're talking in very broad strokes often. And what you will see is that, uh, and in the People's Daily, you'll see this. You'll see a lot of Chinese scholars, academics, analysts and even sort of folks working, sort of heading different institutions, will be analyzing and interpreting a speech to sort of distill it down to what it would mean in terms of actual policy measures and implications. And that's the process that plays out in the People's Daily in some detail. I think one of the reasons why i print, and if you look at what the People's Daily talks about itself, it says that its circulation is at around 3 million today. My sense is that it's predominantly aimed at party cadre is predominantly aimed at party Carter and different departments through the newspaper are actually communicating to sort of lower level departments. So the organization department is communicating to sort of provincial three-level departments, ensuring that this is the line that needs to be followed. This is sort of the approach that the central government or the central leadership wants you to follow. So predominantly this communication is internal within the party. It's about setting up priorities. It's about making sure... That those priorities are communicated and they are doubled down upon. Now, why would you continue to do this when you have newer and different tools? I think the People's Daily and others have also tried to adapt to these newer and different mediums. Uh, and particularly, say, when Xi Jinping talks about you know innovation in discourse and cultivating discourse power. What we've seen is that different media outlets, including the People's Daily, have sort of created, expanded social media presence, have used sort of far more creative tools. One of the examples that comes to my mind is obviously last year when the Black Lives Matter protests were going on in the U.S., you saw that uh, graphic that the People's Daily had put out with the Statue of Liberty sort of crushing, you know, a police officer sort of emerging from the ropes of the Statue of Liberty, crushing the White House and the, you know, crushing the neck of a black man under the sort of facade of the White House. So they've tried to innovate to become sort of far more popular and shape discourse uh, with, a, with the general public, with the outside pub, with sort of people outside China and with sort of the youth within China but that's not their primary target audience. They're sort of engaged in that narrative contestation. Their primary audience is essentially the party card uh, and making sure that they understand and fall in line with the the priorities of the party and different departments therefore sort of use the people daily for that perspective. Whereas if you see the seven o'clock news uh, bulletin, essentially that's talking about, that does a similar job, uh, but television is a different beast. It has different limitations print allows you some more space, digital allows you greater space. So I think it's the use of different things. Uh, the last thing that I would say, and I think this is sort of, again, something that, uh, you know, in the West, print media has, going, has gone through a different level of crisis. In India, even today, we'll see print media as, as thriving, uh, you know, particularly language print media in India is thriving. And I think that there's a commonality in China and India in this sense, where where certain authority is associated with the printed word, as opposed to, say, the new mediums of communication. And I think that authority, sort of the seriousness that goes with the printed word still matters. And, and, as a, and as a journalist, I'll tell you this in my head, even today, the idea of reading my byline in the print is far, far higher at a certain level that the gratification from that is far greater than seeing your sort of name in, uh, on a website. And I think that sort of mentality also sort of plays a role in why some of these forms sustain.
0: That's great, Manoj. That, that's a really excellent, excellent analysis. I wanted to next ask you about sort of aesthetic impressions you have about the actual People's Daily itself, the design, the feel, the, you know, the sections. You've been reading this, as you say, two and a half hours every day. What do you notice about the People's Daily? What sticks out at you? I mean, there's from you know, cover design to length, to sections, to features. I'm curious just your general impressions now after having immersed yourself in this uh, on a daily basis.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that it's, as a paper, it's as unexciting as it could be. Uh, It's not, you know, I I don't think there's any effort that's going into making it exciting. Uh, You obviously have specific areas and spaces for advertising. So unlike, say, where I would see papers in India, where, you know, you'd see advertising on the masthead, or you'd see advertising somewhere else, you've got none of that, which tells me that revenue, commercial interests are of absolutely uh, no relevance at all. What you'd also see is, uh, and I think a lot of analysts who look at discourse in China do this where they sort of agonize over how many times was Xi Jinping mentioned, what's the size of the font, what's the color of the font. And yes, to some degree, they do convey certain things. But I mean, I think we agonize far more about that than we should. In terms of the structure of the paper, it's fairly structured. So once you sort of get to it, you sort of get into a rhythm, you start to you start to expect what you what you can on a certain page. So The first page will predominantly be, uh, it won't necessarily be the most current or the most newsworthy content, but it will be predominantly about what the top leadership is doing, Xi Jinping obviously being first. And then sometimes you'll see stuff about Li Keqiang, but you'll see also other Politburo Standing Committee members and their engagements uh, on the front page often. You'll also see a lot of, Commentary on the front page from time to time, uh, which again will be about the sort of key priorities of the party, whether it's regarding ideological issues, whether it's regarding a speech that was given, and those sorts of things. The second page is usually domestic news, low priority domestic news, and and run-on stories. Uh, the third page is predominantly about China's engagement with the world, so not so much world news, but news related to Chinese foreign policy. And again, there you'll find things which most media outlets tend not to cover. So it will be about, say, you know, a PSC member, Li Shu, speaking to uh, parliamentary committee members from different countries, which gets very little to no coverage in the world media at all, unless it's sort of Xi Jinping or Li Chang or even Wang Yi having that conversation, which to me is problematic because the role of the foreign ministry in China is very different. The role of if a PSC member is having a conversation, it's at a different level. If the international department is having an event or a conversation, it's at a different level. The foreign ministers, is at a very different sort of uh, in, the, in terms of the hierarchy. Uh, yet in international media, we tend to cover the foreign ministry much more because uh, of our perceptions of the role of the foreign ministries or the State Department in the US in our systems. Uh, and I think that's where we sort of miss a trick. But that page three sort of gives you some of this. And and that's how the pages are usually structured. Page four is, again, domestic news. Often it's related to ideological issues, but often even related to Hong Kong, particularly in the last year and a half, a lot of uh, page four news is on Hong Kong. Sometimes on page six or page two, you'll find full speeches, full texts of uh, of legislation or, uh, you know, of new regulations that the parties come up with. And then the latter, the sort of the far you go sort of deeper you go into the paper what you see is that a couple of pages are reserved for advertising um, and subsequently page 13 which is usually the theory page is where you'll find a sort of meaty discussion from scholars analysts, or sort of people from different institutions provinces and it's useful to sort of see who's saying what because it also gives you a sense of where they are standing politically and that's how I essentially sort of look at the paper aesthetically I don't think it's something that's really attractive but I guess it's like, once you get into it, it's a bad habit to let go of, uh, and it just sticks with you.
0: Manoj, I wonder if you could, if we could circle back to the front page for a minute. I had a few questions about this, but I wonder if you could drill down a little bit on a comment you made. You said it's not always the most important news that makes the front page. In terms of sort of geographic layout of the first page, is there a above the fold, below the fold position? That you see here, or is essentially anything on the front page, irrespective of position, kind of of equal weight?
1: No, so I wouldn't say that it's of equal weight. I think there's very clearly an above the fold and below the fold. Uh, And what you will see is that things related to predominantly in the last one and a half year, what I've noted is that things related to Xi Jinping and Xi Jinping's engagements, those tend to be far more prominent and they tend to be sort of above the fold. Uh, And they tend to get far more space also. So often, and Of course, it also depends on the content. But what you will see is that things that Xi Jinping has done, will, uh, you, those stories will not run on to subsequent pages. They'll usually command space in the front page. A meeting that Li Keqiang may have had with regard to a sort of weekly state council meeting or a visit that he's had to a province and he's spoken about something, will, may get referenced and may get mentioned, but it will run on to the subsequent pages. Likewise with other leaders. That doesn't happen with Xi Jinping. Unless, of course, it's a speech or whatever. Two days ago, uh, the people's really had Xi Jinping's sort of diplomatic engagements with three different world leaders and a message that he had sent to the new Iranian president-elect. And all of that commanded front page. It didn't sort of go anywhere else. Uh, and whatever other news could, could have been was sort of left for much later. So it just tells you about the priorities and the sort of structure of the pages. Also, usually what you will see is that anything specific to regulations that the Central Committee has issued or sort of important regulations with regard to the structure of the party, the organization of the party, those will get sort of primarily highlighted on the top half of the front page. Uh, They don't sort of go to the lower third. So that's, I think, again, something aesthetically that's worth noting. Uh, And I don't think that's shifted, at least in the time that I have been reading it. But yeah, like I said, you don't see, uh, it's not a categorization of the most important news of the day. So, you know, Joe Biden's election victory uh, for all, for the global ramifications that it's had, didn't get front page coverage. It sort of gets, it comes much later because it's not of party interest in that sense, uh, or it's not something that the party is interested in highlighting. But yeah, in commentaries, you'll, you've just seen a lot of talk about the chaos that followed in the US after the election but that gets pushed much, much, much later. Uh, pre- the front page is all about what are the party's priorities and predominantly how Xi Jinping is operating.
0: Can I ask a, a follow-up on that, which is of course now, so we're recording this on June 23rd, we're, we're a week away from the beginning of the commemorations of the 100th anniversary. But more importantly, I think there's an expectation that you know Xi Jinping will take a third term as general secretary next fall at the 20th party Congress. We're still, though, always looking for signs of which possible officials may be sticking around after the 20th Party Congress. And the big one, which is, are any officials potentially being groomed for senior leadership positions? And I'm curious, as you've looked at front page coverage of other senior leaders, do you notice any patterns or signals, even if they're fairly weak, um, about which officials Xi Jinping seems to like to display in prominence and any, any signals that you're seeing on the front page about, you know, an individual like a Hu Chunhua, hua for example, or others that people have been speculating about their future position? Does anything stand out to you? I think that's really difficult, right, because it's such a
1: difficult system to sort of break through and to try and figure out who's moving where and what's going to happen in a year and a half. And a year and a half is a long time in Chinese mm-hmm. politics. So uh, it, it's going to be tricky to sort of, I, I don't have a, a sort of a couple of names, but uh, you know, a couple of people that I can sort of think of, one of the uh, people who've sort of been gotten much more space in the People's Daily, so State Councillor Wang Yong. He's gotten much more space and at least over the last couple of months, I've noted sort of far more coverage about the work that he's been doing. There's been far more coverage about Chen Yixin. He has, you know, appeared far more prominently. Ho Chin Wa has also uh, on and off sort of seen references to him, but uh, it's not, you know, as prominent as I would have uh, presumed. So... I mean, I don't know what to make of it, but it's not as prominent as I would have presumed. But it's really, really difficult. I think the front page usually gets, and predominant even across the sort of if it's not the front page, you see, uh, you know, mostly people who are currently heading certain departments. So whether it's people who are heading the political and legal affairs committee, uh, and in terms of the rectification campaign that's going on in that context, Ko so, shang Kun would be, he'd be there. If you'd see uh, Li Keqiang, of course, members of the Politburo Standing Committee, generally, anything that they do gets referenced. Lee Shu for the last couple of weeks at least, has been all over the place. Uh, I've sort of covered him a lot in terms of his activities in the People's Daily. uh, We've seen regularly him being featured. The other member that I can talk about is uh, Wang Chen, he has also received uh, and he in fact recently did a piece which was quite prominently featured uh, in the paper so i think some of these people yes but i, I you know it's really difficult to figure out what's going to happen by 2022 october still early days and also th- there aren't enough strands in the people's daily for me to pick up and say yeah
0: if we were to flip to the theory page which again nominally is a platform for discussion. I'm not sure necessarily debate, but certainly discussion or small d debate. What is being discussed uh, in in these pages? And and what do you notice about the parameters of discussion that are permissible? In, In my reading of your analysis, there certainly are important messages coming through from the articles that are being put in the theory page, but I'm not sure there's a lot that's earth shatteringly interesting in terms of what it tells us about broad contours of debate. It seems to be a pretty regular recitation of some of the core themes about about party supremacy, about the exceptionalism of the CCP, about the superiority of China's governance model, but you're watching it much closer. What do you notice about the the topics under discussion on, on the theory page?
1: Yeah, so I agree with you. I think a lot of the time there is a lot of recitation that takes place uh, on the theory page uh, and a repetition of, you know, what's sort of become common knowledge now uh, in terms of how the party wants to put the narrative out. And there's a lot of repetition of that. I agree. What I sort of look for is how firstly are those arguments being made? Uh, And over the last few months, what I've seen is that frequently those arguments are made referencing things that Xi Jinping has said. And that, to me, is the first sort of sign of, you know, uh, this idea of his authority. Because everything, even the most rational, logical argument that's being made, is being made by first sort of couching it in comment, a statement by Xi Jinping, a quote by him, and then you make that argument. Uh, So that, to me, is sort of the first thing. And I try to see who's deviating, who's not deviating from that norm. And that sort of is one thing that I try to see. Now, again... One of the challenges with these things is that you can identify certain patterns, but interpreting those patterns is another ballgame altogether. So my objective primarily is to start looking at certain patterns and then see how I can interpret them with much more information beyond what's just there in the people's daily. The other thing is that there is a narrative, of course, like you said, about the superiority of the system and its success. But there's also, and I sort of, when I started going through this far more closely, I realized that there's also a certain degree of realism in what they're talking about, particularly in the, when, I've, when I'm reading how they are defining China's place in the world. So beyond this propaganda of how successful the party is, how it was the historical choice of the Chinese people and sort of a, de- in some ways, destiny's child and all of that, you're also seeing that there's a realization that there are deep challenges that exist, firstly domestically. Uh, and then interna- internationally, in terms of its external environment, and I think some of that assessment is fairly honest when they're saying that look, we we today enjoy a far better space domestically and internationally in terms of availability of capital, in terms of quality of labor, in terms of technology, in terms of you know our education system, in terms of our healthcare system, in terms of the size of the market, in terms of China's connectivity to global supply chains. Today we enjoy sort of uh, in some ways, uh, in the history of the PRC, unparall- unparalleled sort of we're in an unparalleled position. Yet there are deep challenges it persist with regard to employment, inequality, weaknesses with regard to core technology, unbalanced nature of growth, health, pollution, and so on and so forth. So that's the first thing that it's not completely, it's not entirely deluded. There's a realism that exists in some of this dialogue that's going on, you know, within those pieces. The second thing is how they sort of look at the world and sort of balance of power that they encounter today. They're talking about, look, how there are greater risks that still exist, yet there is a period window of opportunity. And to me, recitation of that repeatedly tells me a little bit about how, about how foreign policy is likely to continue. Because despite the changes, you're not necessarily seeing that opportunity vanish. So that's the first thing. And the, how they sort of perceive China's position in the world that there are still sort of opennesses despite how things have changed in the last year and a half, in particular, if not, uh, you know, at, at least since the trade war was launched by Donald Trump. What I can't figure out, and what those commentaries don't talk about is, or how long in their perception does this window of strategic opportunity persist is it shrinking is it not shrinking is that shrinking inevitable sometimes there are some pieces that will give you a glimpse that there is an understanding that this shrinking is inevitable so we shouldn't be really terribly bothered about it but at other times you will see and this was there i think about a month or so ago there was a piece which talked about which referenced joe and lai and joe and lai's diplomacy which i thought sort of came off left field Uh, And the fact that, you know, in the 1950s, Zhou Enlai went to the world with a message of friendship and he reshaped sort of China's image. Fascinating little bit of tidbit in a commentary which otherwise said everything else that you've read everywhere else, but suddenly had that little bit. Again, how do you interpret that? Is another matter altogether? Is it a sign of some discourse about, look, we need to re-engineer what we're doing and at that level in the People's theory? Or is it something else? I don't know. That's challenging to figure out. But to notice some of these changes, to me, is sort of useful because it tells you a little bit about how the leadership's priorities are being interpreted and what is the kind of discussion that's going on among Chinese scholars analysts uh, who may be closer to the party leadership.
0: That's actually, Manoj, that's a great place to start to wrap up the conversation, which is... You've been doing this for so long and so carefully. I'm curious what tools are in your analytical toolkit when you engage with these primary source materials like the People's Daily. If you were giving advice to a aspiring current analyst of Chinese politics, Chinese intentions, Chinese debate, what tips have you picked up and what tools have you developed that you may be able to to share with, with folks as they you know either wade through uh, the people's daily or watch a you know CCTV bo or or read a, a speech by a chinese leader how how might you be able to guide how, how they construct their analysis yeah i
1: think the first thing that i would say is that look uh, it's really important not to sort of get overawed by the stodgy discourse After a certain part of time, you get used to it uh, and you wade through it without even realizing it. And as you read the blog that I do, there are points of time where I stop and I tell myself, uh, and I've sort of said this, I'm sort of engaging in self-criticism because some of the stodgy discourse becomes so commonplace that you stop to even uh, think about it. So when you go through it, yes, uh, you you get to a point where it no longer matters, but uh, stop and think about it. For example, the comment that Xi Jinping made at the NPC after in 2018 after he did away with the constitutional amendment, uh, with the sort of presidential term limits, his comment was about phrasing China's history in three different epochs. So it was standing up, becoming rich, getting strong. And it's a throwaway sentence which has been repeated so many times. But to me, when I'm looking at Xi Jinping today, I'm trying to figure out what does getting strong mean? And increasingly, the way he's behaving with the private sector, and with with the technology sector tells me that getting strong may not necessarily mean getting rich for some of these people. It may mean getting rich uh, with certain conditions. And you sort of start to then unpack some of these, you know, throwaway statements because they give you deeper meaning. So look at the statement, but also look at the policy action that's uh, happening with that. Don't just read the speech and take it at face value. Look at the policy measures, and then you probably go back to some of the language that's used and it helps you unpack what it might actually mean. That's the first sort of thing. The second thing is uh, within speeches and within pieces, try to look at, again, what are sort of operative instructive elements, which again, as you you see how those speeches are being interpreted in the People's Daily or in other places over the weeks and months that follow, uh, or in terms of policy measures, it allows you to sort of then go to future speeches and try to figure out a pattern of how you want to interpret them, what may be key policy instructions in that particular speech that the leader may give. The third thing is consistency. Just do something consistently, um, you know, it'll allow you to sort of identify patterns. And like I said, interpreting what those patterns mean is tricky business. And whether your reading is on the mark, off the mark, depends on so many other factors. But don't worry about that. Identifying patterns itself is very, very useful and it sort of sharpens your own skills. And the last thing to do is that and I think this is really important from at least from an Indian point of view, from what I can understand, is that often the case is made in India that China's rise and China's phenomenal economic growth at certain levels sort of viewed with envy is a product of the party state system, the unitary system, which, uh, you know, delivers efficiently, doesn't necessarily involve a lot of political wrangling, unlike the sort of messy nature of our democracy. And I think it's important to go back into read and see that that's not the case. There's tremendous politics that plays out, whether that's in terms of Narrative control, divergences over policy issues, and you can see them if you read some of these papers much more consistently. And it sort of allows you to understand how that politics plays out. It's different, but it does happen. Politics is then everything, and I think that's a useful sort of learning to take away, particularly in sort of democracies which today are dealing with far more messy situations.
0: No, those are those are absolutely excellent tips, with many of which I, as I was hearing you. Uh, unpack them, I was realizing how imperfectly or Im- immaturely I do many of those, especially your comment on on consistency being uh, being helpful. But those are really, really excellent. And I, I want to thank you. This has really been a, a, a really important and fascinating discussion. And as we were talking about before we started to record, how important it is to build this muscle of Watching China, but more importantly, as you said, listening in to the discussions that they're having internally and the comment you just made, which I completely agree with, not assuming that there's no politics, even if we recognize the constricted contours of debate, which of course exist under Xi Jinping, if we just throw up our hands and assume that, you know, every statement that comes out has complete fidelity with the intentions of the general secretary, we're gonna miss some important opportunities for understanding and and nuance. So uh, I just wanna thank you again for today and really wanna thank you for this public service, which is tracking people's daily, which again, folks can find if you just uh, search that or, or if you go on Substack. And also want to recommend that uh, when folks uh, either in print on Kindle or EPUB get uh, Manoj's new book, which is called Smokeless War, China's Quest for Geopolitical Dominance, which is published by uh, uh, Bloomsbury. So Manoj, thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate your time and your insights. Thank you so much. This is my pleasure. Thank you so much.
1: If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts. From Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org
0: slash podcasts to see our full catalog